Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. We have a great show lined up for you. And throughout it all, I'll be joined by a great co-host, Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, how are you doing? Hi, Michael. I'm doing okay. I'm. It's grey and horrible here, and my partner is currently baking in the Sicilian heat. So I really don't... I mean, I think he's probably more worse off right now because it sounds horrible, but also, where the hell is this summer? Like, I'm devastated. I shouldn't that be wearing is. this in July. First story. Keir Starmer's decision to keep the Tories' two-child benefit policy might be one he's starting to regret. Yesterday, Labour MPs rounded on the leader, apparently seething at his plan to keep at least 250,000 kids in poverty and a further 850,000 deeper below the breadline. Today, it was the SNP's turn. This was SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn in Prime Minister's Questions. Voters in Scotland are used to child poverty under the Tories. They almost expect it. But what they don't expect... What they don't expect is child poverty support from the Labour Party. And if we look very closely right now, there is a shiver running along the Labour front bench looking for a spine. And Mr Speaker, does this not tell us something much bigger? They're for children living in poverty in Scotland. Westminster offers them no real change. It offers them no real hope. Last year, over 80,000 children lived in Scottish households whose income had been reduced by the two-child benefit cap. And since the cap came into force in 2017, Scottish families have lost out on £341 million. The SNP government in Holyrood has tried to offset that damage by introducing a Scottish child payment. It amounts to £25 per child every four weeks and doesn't depend on how many children there are in any household. And all this means Starmer's backing of the two-child policy may prove politically damaging in Scotland, where it's SNP voters rather than Tory voters who need convincing. Writing in a Times opinion piece, Scottish columnist Kenny Farkasan said this, the SNP has grasped this the way a drowning man being swept downstream grasps a branch from an overhanging tree. And the nationalists are right to think this Labour misstep may prove to be their salvation. Starmer has now put Scottish Labour's resurgence in jeopardy. The SNP voter most open to a switch to Labour at the UK general election is one for whom social justice is a greater motivation than getting teary-eyed singing Flower of Scotland. He goes on. If Starmer cannot personally commit to the fight against poverty, why should habitual SNP voters change their ways even temporarily? You can sense Anna Sawa's frustration. This row seems perfectly designed to halt Scottish Labour's rise in the polls. Worse, it has given the SNP permission to attack Scottish Labour from the left. In a sign that the SNP will make the most of the backlash against Starmer, they've even started making some merch. SNP members were apparently handing these mugs out to journalists before PMQs today. The leaflet inside says the Labour Party has a new range of mugs in production. They're made in China, just like Starmer's latest policy. Now that's of course a reference to China's now abandoned one child policy. The mug itself says controls on family sizes and what's the point of Labour? It's a reference to mugs sold by Labour in 2015 that said controls on immigration and I'm voting Labour. That became infamous, of course. Um, This morning, Shadow Chancellor Rachel Rees was doing the media rounds attempting to defend the indefensible. That's when Martin Lewis made this challenge on ITV's Good Morning Britain. You talk about fiscal responsibility, which is absolutely true, but ultimately you could say that to any policy of a government. This is a policy choice you are making, 
not to get rid of the benefit caps for two, uh, two children or more. On Twitter, the, the hashtag SirKidStarver was trending. And that was originally come up with by a left-wing commentator. How does that make you feel in the Labour Party? Are you making the right policy choice not to do this? Well, the last Labour government lifted hundreds of thousands of children out of poverty. Keir Starmer set out our opportunity mission, and at the heart of that was reducing uh, child poverty. But we've got to grow the economy, and that brings in the revenue. That's what the last Labour government did. The economy grew, we had the money for public services, and living standards improved. That is my priority, ensuring that we grow the economy, but that has to be built on a rock of economic and fiscal stability, because if you lose control of the public finances and if your numbers don't add up, it's actually the poorest people in society that pay the highest cost because you lose a grip of inflation, of interest rates and everything else and all the struggles we've got today. So I'm not going to fall into that trap. All of our numbers will add up, but I am absolutely determined, as every Labour government has done in the past, that we will lift children, we will lift pensions, we will lift families out of poverty. But we have to do that on that rock of economic and fiscal stability. Oh, that is our duty to the country. Shadow. That ironclad commitment to so-called fiscal responsibility, meaning no borrowing and no tax rises for public investment, is the opposite of the 1945 Labour government. They built the welfare state when the country was genuinely close to bankruptcy. They also recognised, though, that if you wanted to rebuild the economy, you had to make sure that people were healthy, that they were happier than they had been, that they had secure housing. Labour now seem to have forgotten that to some degree. Um, it's also at odds with Joe Biden. Across the Atlantic, Joe Biden's expansionary economic program has been attacked by his right-wing critics, but unlike Starmer and Reeves, he's responded to those attacks with pride. This is Biden's latest campaign video featuring far-right Republican headbanger Marjorie Taylor Greene. Joe Biden had the largest public investment in social infrastructure and environmental programs that is actually finishing what FDR started that LBJ expanded on, and Joe Biden is attempting to complete programs to address education, medical care, urban problems, rural poverty, transportation, Medicare, Medicaid, labor unions, and he still is working on it. It's very impressive, sort of embracing what was supposed to be an attack from Marjorie Taylor Greene and saying, yeah, of course I'm I'm pro-labor and I'm in favor of social security and investment in a green economy. Very, very effective. That was the sign, I think, of a, of a confident politician. Um, UK Labour are much less keen, of course, to put themselves on the side of the working class. Indeed, it's another class they've been wooing. Rachel Reeves has been sending personal letters to Tory financial backers, inviting them to breakfast. A cynic might wonder whether it's those cosy breakfasts that have led Labour to rule out tax rises on the rich, and which mean we're told there's no way we can fund a decent standard of living for all of Britain's children, however big their families might be. Dahlia, in, in England, I mean, you can see the logic of why the Tories think they can't go to right with us, and these voters that we are really laser-focused on are Labour Tory swing voters. Therefore, we just really have to hammer home this point that we're not going to increase taxes and we're not going to go more into debt because I think those are those or those are their weaknesses, sorry, with those particular voters. In Scotland, it's quite a different story though, isn't it? The polls were starting to look good for Labour. If the SNP can attack them on this, then that could be a real blow to them. 
Yeah, and I don't see a pathway to Labour having a resounding victory in the general election, or even a victory um, without Scotland, without winning Scotland back. I'm sure, you know, if they if they were able to, if they didn't get Scotland, maybe they could scrape through. But I can't see it being a resounding victory without regaining um, those votes from the from the SNP. Um, but there's so much uh, in that story. You know, child poverty is probably the biggest scandal of the past 10 years of conservative rule. And that's really saying something because it has been a very scandal ridden uh, 10 years. You have, you know, 44 percent of families on low incomes having parents not eating meals in order to make sure that their children can be fed. Uh, and that was before the cost of living crisis. So now that we're in this era of extreme price increases, I don't know where the extra slack in the system is coming from. If people were already skipping meals to make sure that their children could eat, you have the return of these Victorian diseases in children, you know, malnutrition, rickets, uh, scurvy, all of these kinds of things. And so ending this cap on child, on this two child cap on benefits would be one of the most cost-effective and almost immediate ways that you could tackle that disgusting legacy of the Conservatives over the past 10 years. It would immediately lift something like a quarter of a million uh, children out of poverty. So the fact that the Labour Party can't even commit to that under this bizarre guise of economic and fiscal responsibility. Like, if your economy can't exist or function if children have their bellies full, then you need to change your economy. I mean, it's as simple as that, because otherwise, what is the point? But crucially, we have to think, and I think in the last part of that story, when um, you talked about Rachel Reeves courting these you know, Tory donors, I think that's the answer here as to why um, the Labour Party are going down this route, which of course is deeply unpopular with most normal people for whom ending child poverty would be a clear vote winner. This is really about not just courting the kind of financial elite who want to destroy any semblance of a welfare state in this country, but ultimately, I think it's about courting the Murdoch press. I think they look back at that 1997 victory that Blair had, and they see the alliance, the unholy alliance between Murdoch and Blair as a key ingredient to that success story. And I think they are trying to, to replicate that. And unfortunately, I don't think that they're entirely wrong in that. I do think that, again, unfortunately, Murdoch is probably the most decisive figure in terms of who wins elections in this country and has been since 1997. But the thing that you're forgetting or the thing that Rachel Reeves is forgetting is that at least Tony Blair came in on the premise of hope, you know, even though, of course, the Blair premiership laid the foundations for many of the things that we see with this conservative government, particularly around, uh, you know, stuff around migration, but also the fact that even some of the good stuff that Blair brought in, you know, like sure start centers, he never fully incorporated it into the welfare state and always had this need to make everything into a kind of public private partnership to make sure that anything could be, would be about lining the profits in the pockets of big business. So that it was always flawed and it was always so limited in what it did and it could have done so much more. And that's not even going into the barbaric international policy that Blairism was. But at least in 1997, 
they came in on the premise that things might just get a little bit better. So the fact that Keir Starmer, Sir Kid Starmer, is coming in on this and isn't even offering that meagre hopefulness that was offered in 1997 really tells me that he is being set up to fail and to be even more of a disappointment than and eventually a liability than the Blair government was. Dahlia, you said there that ending child poverty is a popular policy. I mean, I think that probably is if you ask the question in in that way. Labour clearly have been looking at polls suggesting that there is actually a majority in favour of capping child benefits after two children. Do you think that's sort of, is that surprising to you? I saw that that research as well. And of course, you know, I mean, you're a political scientist, you know that the way that questions are asked influences how they are, uh, how they are answered. And unfortunately, we live in a country where for decades now, including under Blairism, where the whole benefit scrounger myth was in, you know, at its height, um, we've lived in a country where the press and politicians have been telling us that, you know, poor children and working class people are somehow like the enemy of progress in this country and that it's a zero sum game and that the pie is this big and all we can have from it are crumbs and that people, you know, people who are disabled, people who are working class are the reason that we have inequality in this country. And so in that context, people being told, you know, because people have been made to think that benefit caps are going to make their lives better because of this divide and conquer that we have amongst the working classes, um, you know, where people are trying to kind of kneel down on the people who they see as lower than them or as more vulnerable than them. Unfortunately, people think of cutting benefits as synonymous with a wealthier society. Of course, that makes no economic sense, particularly when you're talking about the welfare of children. Like, even if you are the kind of person who has a belief that, you know, working class people shouldn't have kids, which, by the way, is a disgusting eugenicist opinion that has no place in a civilized society. But even if you think that, surely you can agree that once the kid is actually born, they shouldn't then be punished for what you see as being the sins of their parents. So, you know, I think that in reality, you know, the kind of society that we build by having a policy like this is not a society that anyone actually wants to live in, even if because of the ways in which benefits have been coded in our public imagination as something that takes away from, you know, from like working class people who don't happen to be on benefits. That is, you know, a false correlation. And I think that's what we're seeing come through um, in polling like that. But it's not the responsibility of a so-called Labour government to follow something like that when we know that the material evidence-based impact of a policy of removing the cap on benefits um, for children would eradicate, or not at least eradicate, but like immediately uh, better the situation for so many poor children. You know, the a Labour Party should have the ability to govern and lead and to create a better society um, off its own initiative and not follow what is, you know, polling that I don't think shows the full picture of what kind of society people actually want to live in. Next story. Heat records are being broken across Europe as the consequences of human-induced climate change interact with the natural weather system El Nino. 
Some examples here. On Tuesday, temperatures of 45.3 degrees Celsius were registered in the Catalonian region of northern Spain. That extreme heat broke the previous record of 43.8 degrees set in 2019. As a result, in the Catalan city of Girona, the council was forced to add the crypts of a cathedral to its network of climate shelters. So you can go hang out in the crypt of a cathedral to try and keep cool. Um, Records were also broken in Italy. Temperatures in Rome reached 41.8 degrees Celsius, causing a sharp rise in hospital admissions. And an A&E in the southern city of Naples said Tuesday was its busiest day since the height of COVID. Greece and the Canary Islands are also experiencing temperatures above 40 degrees. As this Channel 4 news report shows, that led to some pretty shocking scenes. These fiery scenes are just 45 minutes south of Athens. Horses are being removed from their stables. People are getting away from the dangerous flames engulfing their neighbourhood. Text messages from authorities earlier in the day telling them that where they were was no longer safe. Over in Spain, a similar picture. Firefighters here setting ablaze to contain one a fire that's caused thousands to flee the island of La Palma in the Canaries and left wrecked homes in its path. This used to be Alfonso Ballesteros' kitchen. His oven is barely recognisable. I told my wife to dress the children calmly, that the fire would take time to arrive, but after 10 seconds I had to tell her to grab the children naked if necessary. The fire is already here. I had to leave my house because I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see anything. This is Europe on what's set to be its hottest week ever recorded. So it's hottest week ever recorded. Very, very scary. The European heat wave comes a week after research was published suggesting there were over 61,000 heat-related deaths in Europe last summer, which was the hottest recorded on the continent. So We assume it's now um, going to be overtaken. That's what the forecasts are suggesting. Um, Of course, it's not just Europe registering extreme heat in Death Valley in California. Temperatures have reached 53.3 degrees Celsius, which is close to the global record. And multiple regions of China and Japan are experiencing extreme heat. To discuss the high temperatures across the globe, I'm joined by environmental policy researcher Laurie Leyburn. Laurie, um, speak to us about how unusual these events are. I know a record has been reached, but you know, by how much, how unusual is it to see um, temperatures above 40% in southern Europe? Well, the Earth, the whole planet, has not experienced anything like this on the instrumental records. Uh, about 175 years ago, um, society started to use thermometers and other instruments to actually record temperatures, and this is hotter than at any point in that period. Some of the science, which uh, looks at dates that go back further, we can use things like ice cores and other ways of judging temperatures before we use thermometers. Uh, Some of that says that we probably haven't had this for 120,000 years, so since societies have existed and then some. So this is uh, record-breaking in almost every sense, globally. So when you hear right-wingers say, well, sometimes the world gets hot, if you look at the, the geological record, I suppose the response is, yeah, but not when humans have been around. Um, and I suppose that's what we really care about, right? The, 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 the sphere that we call the globe or that we call Earth will exist however hot it gets. The question is how many of us um, survive with it. In my introduction, I was citing sort of research from last week that said 60,000 people died across Europe from heat-related causes last summer. I mean, what is a heat-related cause that someone might 
die from? Well, basically, to, to regulate heat that's hitting your body, you basically breathe and you sweat. And people with pre-existing conditions, uh, people with heart problems, lung problems, and so on, will find it more difficult to regulate the heat and it will have more of a stress on their body. Um, the real problem is that it's making it harder to better breathe and to sweat in a way that can be done at a pace, which means that your pre-existing conditions or the other problems don't get on top of you. And that, unfortunately, is what will have been happening for those huge number of people whose lives have been tragically cut short by this. There's an indirect way in which is impacting our health as well. That the head of the World Health Organization warned about today, which is that it puts unprecedented stress on our health systems. Remember during COVID when we were told that we needed to bend the curve of transmissions because too many people in hospital would push the NHS potentially beyond what it would cope with. That same dynamic, in a way, is apparent here. And there has not been enough investment in health systems all around the world, including here in the UK, in making sure that they're ready to deal with this unprecedented heat. And then the last one I'll add in about health is that it's not just about those, what we could describe as direct impacts to our health, like heat making us ill. It's that the worsening climate crisis will disrupt things like our food system. So our health will get impacted by a lack of food availability, by the knock-on consequences of higher food prices, which will drive economic and social instability. We've got to stop thinking just about the first order, the direct impacts, the immediate impacts on health or rising sea levels, and think about those system-wide risks, the kind of risks of a scale that we saw during COVID. It's that that will typify the problem. And the record temperatures are obviously a reminder that we probably need to hurry up with reducing carbon emissions. At the same time, we probably need to do something very much in the short term to deal with it as well. Is it, is it time for sort of mass European rollout of air conditioning? Or do we just want to open up more crypts under cathedrals for sort of people to, to go and hang out in or vulnerable people to hang out in when temperatures hit this level? I mean, what, what should we be looking for as a short term solution? It's a sort of poetic, fitting uh, image, isn't it, to be doom scrolling the Guardian live blog about the heat waves in a crypt trying to save your life from the encroaching heat. But there is a lot of adaptation that needs to be done, unfortunately. Um, that's We should see that as a direct result of the failures of our leaders over recent decades, the failure of our, of our leaders to implement policies that they knew they had to implement to change our society so they were no longer dependent on fossil fuels and a failure to rein in the fossil fuel companies who are politically dominant in large parts of the world. Um, some of that adaptation can be bad. It can be what's called maladaptation, which basically makes things worse. Aircon is in some ways an example of that. The hotter it gets because of fossil fuel pollution, um, the more aircon we use, which if it's dependent or powered by fossil fuels will then rise the temperatures and then things will get worse and we need more air conditioners and then there'll be more fossil fuels and so on. So that's an example of maladaptation. There are win-wins, though, the opposite example, where we could do stuff, say, to cities that will make it cooler, so we'll be better adapted to deal with heat. But they could also make those cities better to live in anyway and reduce carbon emissions. So if we have more greenery, more wet, blue spaces in cities, we use less air-choking, fume-filling cars and have better public transport and so on, that would help the climate problem, help us get better adapted, and also probably make those cities more accessible for people, particularly on low income. So there's a huge amount to do. We've known this for decades, but leaders are failing to do so because they're not treating this like the emergency and the opportunity that it is. 
And on a show last week talking about a similar topic, so hot, hot temperatures in Europe, we went to a New York Times article where they were talking about super white paint, which reflects 98% of sunlight. And there was a scientist in that article saying if we covered 2% of the world's surface in white paint, now it shouldn't be contiguous, he said it would sort of be dotted around everywhere, potentially you could completely neutralize climate change because we'd be reflecting as much heat back as we were absorbing. Um, I want your take on super white paint. I'm excited about it, but I don't know how excited I should really be. I mean, stuff should be painted whiter. Uh, if you if you've been to the Middle East and North Africa, if you've been to Mediterranean countries, you'll see that that has existed in traditional knowledge for many generations, a hundred years, hundreds of years of a way to keep places cooler. Um, so we will need to do stuff like that, right? But we also need to deal with the root cause of the problem, which is that fossil fuel companies foremost among a whole range of different interests are making huge amounts of money from trashing the planet they have a massive hold over our politics at the moment fossil fuel companies for example have more delegates at the un climate conferences than any other country does and this is just one of a plethora of examples of how our politics is being skewed by the interests of pushing us towards the brink and for every techno fix that we hear about there'll be some in it that's useful but at the end of the day it's the it's the bread and butter stuff we've got to be changing our politics to make sure that we actually do have a sustainability transition and that sustainability transition at the same time is a just one and one that delivers these benefits to society the changes that to be honest we should have been doing anyway even if there wasn't an environmental crisis do you think these heat waves are sort of in and of themselves accelerating that societal and political change? Do you, do you see that sort of every time we experience this extreme heat, politicians start talking a bit more about climate policy and taking it more seriously? I mean, I think in a, in a slow motion sense, um, the problem here is that because this has happened at, say, a slower pace than how the COVID pandemic came upon us, or russia's invasion of ukraine or at least the the immediate invasion period it means that the political response can be complacent and there's not enough pressure placed on politicians however much there's some great activism and other work going on to make that happen um the i don't i i think that this will edge things along more i think there'll be more speeches by the un secretary general i think the un climate conference will have more strident speeches made at that there will be a growing ripple effect of more people being tuned onto this as a problem we've got to make sure though that we don't slip into a complacency where we're waiting for a kind of a seminal event to suddenly wake people up for two reasons one that seminal event could be so destructive that actually it could be counter productive. It could elicit a kind of defensive knee-jerk reaction from people who could switch from not being alive to the problem to suddenly saying, oh, well, the world's trashed. We've got to protect what's left. And there's always that risk bubbling in the background. The other is that it doesn't really face up to power dynamics. Um, there has been so much evidence and information out there about the problem. I agree that many people, particularly in relatively sheltered global north countries like the UK, are engaging with that in some respects intellectually and not actually living it, like if you're in Pakistan or if you're in the Middle East, say. But even if you're fully caught on to this, this is about, at the end of the day, power. The power of certain sectors and firms and people to dictate the agenda for how our economies develop and what those economies are for. And some of those groups are standing directly in the way of ensuring that those economies don't trash planet and another set of interest groups who want to change that and ensure those economies work better for people and planet are not getting the time 
that they need in the political process. So we've got to make sure that at every opportunity to fight back against those power dynamics is, is not wasted. Let's go straight to our next story. The BBC is at the centre of a new political drama. That's after it published a story about Nigel Farage and the closure of his bank account, a story that's now being called into question. Farage has now demanded an apology from the corporation. The tale begins with this video posted online by Farage in June. I have been with the same banking group since 1980. I've had my personal accounts with them since that date and my business accounts right through the 1990s when I worked in the city of London and in recent years too. I'm with one of the subsidiaries of this big banking group, one with a very prestigious name, but I won't name them just yet. I got a phone call a couple of months ago to say, we are closing your accounts. I asked why, no reason was given. I was told a letter would come, which would explain everything. The letter came through and simply said, we are closing your accounts. We want to finish it all by a date, uh, which is around about now. I didn't quite know what to make of it. I complained, uh, I emailed the chairman, uh, a lackey phoned me uh, to say that it was a commercial decision, which I have to say, I don't believe for a single moment. So I thought, well, there we are. I'll have to go and find a different bank. I've been to six, uh, no, seven banks actually, um, asked them all, could I have a personal and a business account? And the answer has been no in every single case. Farage accused the bank, which later turned out to be the uber-posh coots, of political persecution. And people from across the political spectrum rallied behind the GB News presenter, calling it anti-democratic to deny Farage banking facilities and an establishment stitch-up. Others, though, were sceptical of Farage's account. And then, less than a week later, the BBC ran this article. It had the headline, Nigel Farage bank account shut for falling below wealth limit. Co-written by the BBC's business editor, Simon Jack, the article went on to claim this. People familiar with Coote's move said it was a commercial decision. The criteria for holding a Coote's account are clear from the bank's website, they told the BBC. Coote's requires its customers to borrow or invest at least £1 million with the bank or hold £3 million in savings. Speaking to the BBC from France, Mr Farage did not dispute the fact that he did not meet Coote's threshold, but added they didn't have a problem with it for the last 10 years. This was Farage's reaction to that story. Coots, who I hadn't named, but Coots decided to brief their friends at the FT and the BBC that I'd fallen below the financial threshold limit for having an account. And the BBC and much of the media believe that to be entirely true. Point is, they'd never ever discussed any thresholds with me. And this afternoon, Simon Jack at the BBC, to his credit, has tweeted that a number of Coots customers have been in touch with him to say they too are below the so-called financial threshold, uh, and yet their accounts haven't been closed. More interestingly, why were the bank discussing my financial situation publicly with the BBC and the Financial Times? Surely that's not ethical, and possibly it's not even legal. That BBC story also led to some people ridiculing the GB News presenter. For example, former BBC journalist and host of the News Agents podcast, John Sopel, said this. You must feel a bit of a Charlie if you're Nigel Farage and you claim that it's an all an establishment stitch-up that your account's been closed when it's just you're not rich enough for coots. I'm thinking of starting a GoFundMe page for Nigel to get him his account back. 
Now, Nigel Farage has gained access to a 40-page dossier from Coots after lodging a subject access request, and it turns out they did seem to make the decision based on his politics. The committee did not think continuing to bank Nigel Farage was compatible with Coots, given his publicly stated views that were at odds with our position as an inclusive organisation. This was not a political decision, but one centred around inclusivity and purpose. With the support of the committee, the chair concluded the following. After the expiry of the mortgage with Coots, Nigel Farage would not be a criteria client, and we should set a glide path to exiting Farage when that mortgage expires. Dossier also included this passage. The values Nigel Farage actively and publicly promotes champions do not align with the banks, particularly given the manner in which he states and monetizes those views, deliberately using extreme hateful and emotive language, often with a dose of misinformation. At best, he is seen as xenophobic and pandering to racists, and at worst, he is seen as xenophobic and racist. He is considered by many to be a disingenuous grifter and is regularly, almost constantly, the subject of adverse media. The dossier goes into a lot of detail, recording a huge number of Farage's previous statements on a range of topics, from his support for Donald Trump to his antagonism towards Black Lives Matter. It also records his comments on gender equality, LGBT rights, and even Novak Djokovic's vaccine scepticism. Farage's possible connections to Russia were also considered, with the bank concluding this. There is no direct evidence that he has direct connections with the Russian political infrastructure, either through our accounts or via further investigation in the press or the internet. He has not been sanctioned by the authorities in this regard. The dossier also cites Nigel Farage falling below the threshold for an account with Coots, but Farage said this has been the case for 10 years. The BBC, as you heard in that clip, also recognised that other people had retained Coots' accounts whilst missing their financial requirements or not meeting their formal requirements. Coots have said that its ability to respond to Farage's latest claims were restricted by obligations to protect client confidentiality, but it also said this, decisions to close accounts are not taken lightly and take into account a number of factors, including commercial viability, reputational considerations, and legal and regulatory requirements. The issue has been jumped on by many Tory politicians. Jacob Rees-Mogg, Farage's colleague at GB News, raised this point at PMQ's. Does my right honourable friend share my unease that a bank that has the government as its largest shareholder should close the account of a senior opposition politician? Will he use the government's shareholding to ensure that there is an inquiry into these circumstances because the subject data access request makes it clear, or certainly indicates, that it is the person concerns political views that led to his cancellation. And does my right on friend agree with me that however much we may find however much we may find them tiresome, members of the opposition deserve bank accounts? Energy Secretary Grant Shapps has also made his position clear. He was asked about Farage's case on GB News. It's absolutely unacceptable. I don't have to agree with everything that Nigel Farage says, or anything for that matter. It wouldn't make any difference. The idea that you should be unbanked because of your views, of your political views in a democratic system, is outrageous and wrong. Meanwhile, Home Secretary Suwala Braverman tweeted this, The Coots scandal exposes the sinister nature of much of the diversity, equity and inclusion industry. Apparently, anyone who wants to control our borders and stop the boats can be branded xenophobic and have their bank account closed in the name of inclusivity. I don't think it's anyone who wants to control our borders can be branded xenophobic. Nigel Farage has made a career out of talking about crimes committed by 
asylum seekers and sort of going on Fox News and talking to Tucker Carlson about non-existent no-go zones after terrorist attacks. So I think it's very, very possible to call this guy a racist. Of course, whether or not that means his bank account should be shut down is a different matter. And finally, this is Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, of course. This is wrong. No one should be barred from using basic services for their political views. Free speech is the cornerstone of our democracy. Nigel Farage, as you can imagine, has been lapping this all up. He spoke to Sky. My case is one clearly of political discrimination. They do not like my opinions. All of my views are legal. All of my views, actually a majority views in the country. Um, so I think the government needs to act. And the one thing I've been really encouraged by, uh, the reaction from Andrew Griffith, you know, who is the city minister, uh, the reaction I saw from Grant Shapps, he and I have not exactly been political bedfellows over the years, and even the Prime Minister now tweeting articles in the Daily Telegraph. So I actually think this is one of those occasions when the government will move very quickly or change the rules. It is wrong that banks can just close people down and not give any reasons why. Now, I actually agree with Nigel Farage there. I think it is wrong that banks can close down people's accounts and not give any reasons why. I also think it's a bit embarrassing for the BBC to have quite credulously um, accepted Coots at its word. And then people such as John Sapal sort of come in, ha ha ha, it's just because he doesn't have enough money. I mean, Dahlia, what do you make of this? I do find the idea that a bank that exclusively deals with extremely wealthy people's accounts can be a moral arbiter of anything quite laughable. Uh, Coots has long invested in fossil fuels. It's collaborated with a variety of very unsavory institutions. And if you are a bank, a bank that manages the finances of extremely wealthy people, chances are you are going to be managing the finances for people who have actually done pretty disgusting things because we know how most people, most extremely wealthy people um, make their, their, their money. Um, I don't think that this is like a serious social justice commitment. I think what this is, is that in these very elite circles, um, someone like Nigel Farage is seen to be a little bit uncouth, maybe, or a little bit gauche about his particular brand of bigotry. But I'm sure this same bank would accept a back, you know, it would accept an application from someone like a Suella Braverman, who has actually implemented many of the policies that a Nigel Farage could only dream to implement, that has actually had extreme effects on people's lives that would certainly be in violation of any diversity and inclusion policy that a bank may have, which again, given that British banks bankroll the fossil fuel industry, I think having a diversity and inclusion policy is kind of funny. On the one hand, I do believe in no platforming fascists. I be don't believe that fascists should be able, should, I believe that fascists and their ability to move things around should be blocked. You know, I don't think that you can convince someone out of fascism. Now, when it comes to Nigel Farage, obviously, you know, this is someone who was elected to the European Parliament, it becomes more tricky. But, you know, I am not interested in making equivocations between, you know, the far right and the left, which I think some people who say like, oh, they can do this to Nigel Farage, they can do this to anyone else. I, I think that they'd be willing to do it to, you know, I mean, we know that, for example, Palestinian solidarity campaigns have had their bank accounts shut down many times. And um, they already do this. You know, this is not the beginning of that kind of thing. On the other hand, I do believe that, you know, exclusion from financial technology, from financial infrastructure is, of course, basically social and economic death. And it's incredibly serious, particularly because 
we live particularly in Britain, especially as well after the COVID pandemic, uh, we live in a cashless society. Um, I wish that we were having this conversation, not about a Nigel Farage, for whom I have very little sympathy, but for the actual groups of people, you know, rather than single individuals, but actual groups of people who are systemically excluded from our banking infrastructure, not for things that they, not the views that they hold, but because of who they actually are. And the people that are included in this are unhoused people, um, recently arrived asylum seekers and sex workers. These are the groups of people that are actually on a systemic level and on an everyday basis um, are excluded, often indiscriminately, from participating in the banking system. And they are facing the consequences of that because of who they are. And that, to me, I wish we were having this conversation about that um, rather than about Nigel Farage. But when it comes to, you know, banking infrastructures being able to take these kinds of decisions on people's lives, uh, I think more often than not, generally, it's it's a bad idea. But again, I think that this was more of a reputational thing. I think it was more that coots don't want to be seen to be in association with someone that maybe their other clients find to be kind of not very, you know, not reputationally sound, which, you know, that's the name of the game in these sort of very wealthy circles. Um, and because, you know, he didn't have enough money to actually be a valuable client. They were like, this is just dead weight we're happy to get rid of him so i don't this is the idea of tying this in to like actual fights for social justice and you know anti-racist organizing and all of this which is what suella braverman did is ludicrous this is just a bank trying to manage its reputation amongst very wealthy people yeah i mean i agree with that i, I don't think the coups have done this for moral reasons i think and, and they, i don't think anyone's suggesting they've they've actually done anything wrong because they have just looked at their commercial interests and decided that it's not in you know, it's not in their interest to be the bank of a very controversial person. But I do think that if we accept that private corporations can make such decisions based on reputational risk, then that will come and bite the left in the ass. Because obviously, over the Corbyn years, we've seen that there can be many left-wing people who also get called racist. Um, now, I think it's obviously more justified when it's directed at Nigel Farage than when it's directed at Jeremy Corbyn. But if what we're talking about is reputational risk, then it's not actually about facts, is it? It's just about whether or not banks or any other public service has to provide that essential service or whether they can just say, well, you know, it might, it's difficult for us, so we're not going to do it. Like, I do, I do think there is a sort of rights issue that, that matters here and it would make sense for, I agree with you totally, Nigel Farage isn't the biggest victim of the banking system in this country by a very, very long way. But I think the left are in a stronger position if they can say, yes, that's wrong, unequivocally. It's wrong for them to have shut down his account. There are also bigger issues to talk about. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. But the point is, is that the banking system has always done this. It, it's always, it's just become legible. Like, it's not like a thing of, oh, they're just starting to do it now and then it will come back. It's already biting us. You know, like I said, Palestinian solidarity campaigns have long experienced their, um, their accounts being shut down because of their political activity. And it's, this is actually something that disproportionately more wielded against the left than it is against the right. It's already the case. Um, the prior and yet, like the primary victim, I just think it's interesting that the point at which this becomes a national scandal is when it happens to someone like a Nigel Farage. And the reason that that is the case is because deep, deep down, as much as Jacob Rees-Mogg and Grant Shapps might like to distance themselves from a Nigel Farage ca character and say, you know, I might not agree with everything that he says, ultimately Nigel Farage is is seen as bedfellows with 
particularly the um, people who are in government right now. That's what this really reveals to me, rather than any kind of um, revelation about the fact that banking systems and banks in this country have a lot of power, wield it politically, and exclude people systematically based on that power. Let's go to our next story. Dan Wooten has used his GB News show to respond to allegations made about his behaviour in both Byline Times and The Guardian. Those allegations included a claim that Dan Wooten had posed as a made-up character to offer men money in exchange for sexual images. The alleged victims included Wooten's colleagues at his former workplace, Murdoch-owned News UK. Um, And Byline Times quote one of the alleged victims as saying the requests felt like blackmail and entrapment. Byline say they have identified five co-conspirators along with around a dozen victims. This was part of Wooten's response. I, like all fallible human beings, have made errors of judgment in the past, but the criminal allegations being made against me are simply untrue. I would like nothing more than to address those spurious claims. I could actually spend the next two hours doing so, but on the advice of my lawyers, I cannot comment further. But I have been thinking much over the past few days about the current state of social media, where any allegation can be made in an attempt to get someone cancelled, but it is impossible to defend yourself against thousands of trolls. That said, I am coming on air tonight with a lot of humility too. I think being in the middle of this witch hunt has made me think a lot about the sort of journalist and broadcaster I aspire to be. One focused on the massive political threats facing this country, not on personal attacks. I mean, who doesn't have regrets? Should I be cancelled for them many years later? Or do you accept that I have learned and changed? So that was an interesting statement. Dan Wooten says that like all fallible human beings, he has made mistakes, which to me reads as an indication he accepts that at least some of the reporting in Byline is true. And while he denies any criminal activity, he still hasn't denied he is behind the pseudonym Martin Branning. Now that's the character who had been asking for sexual pics or asking for sexual pics in exchange for money. Now, as for his desire to be a better journalist, which you heard there, you'll be unsurprised to learn that the following two hours of Dan's show included a fawning interview with Neil Oliver, who called climate change a hoax, and another segment attacking Meghan Markle. So the idea he sort of turned up with humility and he's going to change as a person, I do not believe a word of it. Let's look at some more of Wooten's monologue. I do also note that there are dark forces out to try and take this brilliant channel down. Whether it's Nigel's bank account, which we're going to hear about from him soon, Patrick's Twitter, Jacob and Lee's ability to speak out, Uh, Calvin, who is also here tonight, his right to have religious views, or Lawrence speaking out against the entertainment establishment. We have all found ourselves under attack. And that's because GB News is the biggest threat to the establishment in decades. And they'll stop at nothing to destroy us. If you were the biggest threat to the establishment in decades, I don't think you would have attracted £20 million in venture capital. Now, venture capital doesn't fund channels it thinks will undermine their power. They fund channels they think will strengthen it, right? That's why there wasn't venture capital throwing £20 million into Navarra Media when we got started, right? Because we don't campaign for the things which venture capital wants. In this case, funding GB News was a smart move, right? 
They are doing what venture capital wants. Nearly all the hosts on GB News want taxes slashed. The channel consistently defends the interests of fossil fuel giants by opposing climate action. And at least four of the channel's hosts are literal Tory MPs, literal Tory MPs, and they have the cheek to call themselves anti-establishment. Dahlia, what do you think of Dan Whitten painting himself as a victim here? I mean, I'm completely unsurprised. This is the business model of GB News. It's victim narrative. It's self-victimization. It's appealing to their audience who are often middle-class white people who have experienced a modicum of perceived loss of social power and are lashing out and believe that they are victims of, you know, anti-racism or Black Lives Matter or feminism or whatever. Uh, And that's what he's, that he's playing that tune. Uh, He knows it's effective. He knows it, what it it tickles a nerve. It like scratches an itch um, for his audience. Uh, And of course, you know, it's, it's complete projection uh, because they call everyone else snowflakes and they call everyone else, you know, subscribing to this victim narrative when really they are the CEOs of the victim narrative. But another part of the, of this sort of projection that I find really funny, um, but actually quite sinister in many ways, is him saying that, oh, you know, um, this, this is just because dark forces, powerful forces are trying to bring down this channel. And so they're throwing all of these accusations at me. First of all, this is coming from like the Kim Kardashian, Kris Jenner playbook of PR to take a scandal and instead of shying away from it or denying it to like flip it on its head and use it to promote the narrative about yourself that you're always trying to push, which is that you're anti-establishment, even though materially you clearly are not. But it's also projection because that is exactly what Dan Wooten and GB News were trying to do with the Hugh Edwards story. We know that it wasn't about any genuine belief about what Hugh Edwards may or may not have done, because when it comes to what the actual son was reporting on, um, the evidence that they had was very lightweight. Obviously, I don't know what, I don't know Hugh Edwards, I can't comment on his character, but when we're talking about the actual evidence the son went off on, it was flimsy. What that story and egging that story on was about was about trying to discredit the BBC, to bring down the BBC, because the BBC have a large market capture of news broadcast media in this country and the likes of GB News, The Sun, The Murdoch Press, etc., want to get rid of that so that they can fill that, that, that vacuum. Um, so absolutely ridiculous, absolutely um, laughable, but actually a, a sinisterly savvy move um, in a sense because he took this scandal, he took this thing that is obviously uh, deeply damaging information and managed to weave it into this meta-narrative that GB News are trying to create, which is A, that I'm a victim, all of you watching me are um, are victims, and these are the people who are victimizing you, you know, liberal elites, migrants, racialized people, people, you know, activists, just stop oil people. So we're all victims and we all, you know, are harboring this victim mentality, um, the underside of which is often quite violent backlash. Um, and also that we are anti-establishment. So it, it's an effective weaving in of, of what should be a very damaging scandal into the meta-narrative that they are trying to curate from them for themselves. And unfortunately, I do think a lot of their audience are probably going to buy it. 
Just on the Hugh Edwards story, so Dan Wharton also said in that monologue, it was six minutes long, he said, I didn't comment at all on the Hugh Edwards story as if sort of like, I would never rush to judgment, so why are people rushing to judgment about me? I mean, for one, I think that probably was just because he was on holiday and maybe he knew this story was coming out. He had been very, very vocal on the Philip Schofield story before all the facts were known about that. I also do think there are some pretty significant differences between the allegations made against Hugh Edwards and the allegations made against Dan Wooten. Now, the reason the Sun story collapsed is because it was about this alleged victim, but then the alleged victim said they didn't feel like a victim, right? So that was where I think that story really collapsed. With this Dan Wooten story, the people that Byline Times have spoken to are the alleged victims, and they do feel as if they are the alleged victims. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean what they've said is completely true, but that is a starting point, which is very different from the Hugh Edwards one. Also, Hugh Edwards doesn't seem to have deceived anyone, at least as far as we know. There was no deception involved. The allegations against Dan Wooten are of deception, because if this story is correct, um, he posed as this character to ask for pictures in exchange for money from colleagues. So there are differences between the Dan Wooten story and the Hugh Edwards story. I think it's important to remember that. Our final story Winning back London was always going to be a stretch for the Conservatives, but they've just gone and made it a hell of a lot harder. And that's because the person they've chosen to take on Sadiq Khan next May for London mayor is this woman. And make a much better mayor than, than he is. He doesn't even like London. It, he mm. moans about London. He wants to pull our, uh, our statues down. He wants to change our road names. He doesn't love London. I love London. I'm sure you do. Well, it it's feels fabulous. like he's embarrassed of London. Yes, isn't... that's right. How dare he be? How dare he be? I'm very proud of London. Yeah. And I would love to be its mayor. That was Susan Hall speaking a month ago on GB News to Dan Wooden, who has since now found himself under a cloud of unsavoury allegations. Um, Hall is now one step closer to becoming London's mayor after beating her rival Moz Hussein with 57% of the vote. She doesn't seem well placed to pull off the same feat against Khan, though. I'm not sure anyone will believe her claim that Sadiq Khan actually hates London. It's just not a credible thing to say. And she has a bunch of other views which put her out of step with the people of England's capital. For example, in 2020, she tweeted this. Come on, Donald Trump, make sure you win and wipe the smile off this man's face. And she ats Seb Gorka. Now, I can't think of anyone really less popular in London than Donald Trump, but the Tory candidate is a public Trumpist. She also sent a lighthearted reply to this tweet from Lawrence Fox. So Lawrence Fox is here tweeting a sort of, it's, it's, it's a version of the LGBT and trans flags to make a swastika. And Susan Hall replies in a lighthearted fashion, oh, Lawrence, with a face palm. Now, I think afterwards she's claimed that was a condemnation. But I think when you look at that tweet, it looks very friendly, I would think, to someone making out that LGBT politics is akin to Nazism. Susan Hall is running on a platform to get tough on crime and to stop the expansion of London's ultra-low emissions zone. London Labour said this in response to her selection. The Conservative candidate for mayor is a hard-right politician who couldn't be more out of touch with our city and its values. She's an outspoken supporter of Trump, Boris Johnson and a hard Brexit. She cheered Liz Truss's mini-budget, which sent mortgages and rents soaring. She doesn't stand up for women and she hates London's diversity. But with a more enthusiastic analysis of Hall's selection, this was how the result was welcomed on GB News. She likes GB News. That's she all does. we know about Susan Hall. So basically, if Susan Hall likes GB News, that means she probably likes you at home. So she yeah. might be worth listening to. <laughs> so <laughs> the best anyone has had to say for this woman today is a GB News, GB News host who knew nothing about her other 
fact and that she liked GB News and therefore should be taken seriously. Um, Dahlia, why, are the Tories even trying? How have they ended up with this candidate for the biggest city in the UK? Yeah, I think that from when they ran Sean Bailey, I was just like, the Conservatives have given up on the London mayoralty. Like, they're just not interested, which is actually quite interesting to me because the London mayor is actually quite a strategic position. Um, I think that, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think that the London mayor is the only other elected person that has the same salary as the prime minister, which kind of tells you that it, it's an it's a politically very important position. You know, they have control of a significant budget. They have a lot of executive power. Um, so I'm not really sure why the Tories would give up on, um, on uh, an election like that. Uh, I guess there's no, they feel like there's not really a pathway to victory for them at the moment in London because of the racism of the central party. Um, it's very hard to win in a place like London when that is what your party brand is. And it's very difficult to dissociate the mayor, you know, your mayoral candidate from your broader party uh, brand. But I do think that it's very important to note the relationship between uh, Hall and Donald Trump. Because I think one thing we don't talk about that much is actually the role that Sadiq Khan plays in the imagination and in the galvanizing of the global far right, particularly the Anglo-American uh, far right. There is a lot of coverage on Fox News, for example, uh, about Sadiq Khan. And that is a deliberate choice. You know, it's not normal that you would have... Uh, news in America, you know, broadcast news in the US covering or having any interest in what the London mayor is doing. But because, of course, you know, Sadiq Khan is a Muslim, he's perceived to be left wing, I would disagree with that. But there is a lot of coded language um, around him as the first Muslim mayor of London, around him being, uh, you know, particularly associating his mayoralty with a rise in crime, with a rise in knife crime, and that being very much racially coded. We also saw the same thing in the aftermath of um, one of the terrorist attacks in London uh, that Donald Trump was tweeting implicating that Sadiq Khan um, believed that there was nothing to fear about that taking place in London. We saw Donald Trump retweeting tweets by Katie Hopkins talking about Londonistan, um, which is, of course, an incredibly racist, is incredibly racist, especially in the context of uh, the mayor being Muslim. And so I think that that kind of the role and the, the way the hyper focus on Sadiq Khan and the kind of conspiracy theories and racialized language that is used around his mayoralty as a galvanizing point in the global far right. You know, obviously it starts there and it ends with the Muslims are taking over and therefore we need to take up arms and we need to, you know, defend our streets, which is, of course, you know, and galvanize a fascistic thing. Um, that, that Sadiq Khan has been a very central figure or has been put situated as a central figure in that broader narrative. And so it's incredibly concerning to me that someone who is potentially running for London mayor, um, who is running for London mayor, is clearly in that kind of milieu, um, particularly by her her relationship with someone like a Donald Trump or, you know, I mean, not an actual relationship, but her co-signing um, the Donald Trumps and the Lawrence Foxes of the world is kind of keying into that particular narrative surrounding Sadiq Khan, Islamophobia, 
and and London. And so that is concerning. But I think it's interesting that the Conservative Party don't seem to have put their weight behind this race or this candidate uh, at all. Um, I think they probably see it as a lost venture and they wouldn't put anyone up for it that they want to have be a credible politician because they're most likely to be, you know, it's most likely to be a pretty devastating loss. Thank you everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.